Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to These Go to Eleven. Once again, I'm Nathan Bell, and I am uh, solo in terms of my co-host tonight. Steve Hartland um, is taking the night off, but I have two great guests. It took uh, two people to replace uh, Steve. Uh, two great guests joining me tonight, um, and I'm going to get to them in just a moment because I'm really excited to talk about their book, so I don't want to spend too much time talking talking about the sponsor, but I do want to bring up Mission Aware again. Um, you know, great guys over at Mission Aware, great products that they have, um, highlighting um, the Yeti uh, tumbler mug that they have over there for these go to 11. Our logo all over some great products over there. We have the Moleskin journals. We have some decals, some beer mugs, um, all kinds of great products over there at Mission Aware. So just make sure you go and check them out. Uh, you know, ladies, you got Valentine's Day coming up, so I'm sure uh, your gentlemen would enjoy, um, you know, a great T-shirt or something from them. So check them out. Um, Again, don't want to belabor this, so I'm so excited to introduce these two gentlemen, Jonathan Bach and Phil Cook. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining. How are you all doing tonight? We're thrilled to be a part of this. This is fantastic. Yes, Nathan. Thanks so much for having us. Excellent. It is my pleasure. It truly is. Really um, love getting um, you know authors onto the podcast, getting uh, great books in the hands of our listeners, and so very excited to talk to you, Jonathan. I want to start with you and just um, you know give you an opportunity to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, friends, family, what you do. Um, you know, do you have any of those things, or you know, just just let us know what's going on with you. I have both friends and family. Excellent. Really that is good to hear. Today. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, yeah, well, my name is Jonathan Bach, and I'm the president of Grace Hill Media. We are a PR and marketing firm uh, out here in Los Angeles, and we we primarily market to the Christian community. We do film and television, and gosh, in the last 18 years, we've done more than 500 different projects. Uh, the Blind Side, uh, Unbroken, the Narnia movies, the Lord of the Rings movies, um, you know, you name it, Lady Bird, Coco, just in a few that we've just done uh, recently. Nice. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm married uh, 20 years Congratulations. To, to my, to my first wife, Kelly. Yep. Still going strong. And, uh, and we have t- uh, two children, both girls, 15 and 12. Yes. We will be praying for you on that front over there. Thank you, sir. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, that's great. So, yeah, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining. And, um, you know, this is, you know, just to let our listeners know, we, um, you know, we are um, kind of in a partnership with you guys over there. Um, you, One of your um, wonderful employees got a hold of me and we were able to talk and set this up as our um, first um, interview, as it were. And so I'm really looking forward to working with you all in the future. Um, so thank you for giving me the opportunity to do this. Um, and then we also have Phil Cook. Phil, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thrilled to be here. Awesome. For those for those listeners, just some behind the scenes stuff. Um, we had a lot of well, not we. I had a lot of problems on my end technically, and so poor Phil has been waiting in the wings for like 15 minutes to tell who he is and what he does. And every time I think I'm going to get to him, I just, you know, cut him off and like, Oh, sorry, we got to get to Jonathan. We got to do Jonathan again. So Phil, I promise this is all about you right now. (laughs) Hey, look, waiting in the wings is the story of my life. Trust me. And and you know what? The more I can hear John's story, the more I just, it it just makes me feel really warm inside. So I've got no problem with that at all. I, uh, 
I am uh, far more spiritual than John. I have a PhD in theology. I think that proves that. And um, I actually have a production company here in Burbank, California. We We've done all kind of stuff. I've, I've produced programming in about 60 countries around the world. Uh, we've done Super Bowl commercials, TV specials, all kind of things. But we focus primarily on helping Christians not suck at the media. <laughs> and if you've ever seen Christian TV or movies, you'll know I will be busy for the rest of my life. There's yes. quite a bit of work done out there. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That is fantastic. I have a friend of mine who is a movie critic. Uh, he's also a believer, and sometimes he has me on his podcast, and we love to talk about movies. And that is one of our major complaints is that um, a lot of Christian media really seems to be uh, two-dimensional, um, very stereotypical in its portrayal of both believers and unbelievers. And so anything you can do to um, make Christian uh, media more palatable for everyone is much appreciated. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Uh, we're on it. We're on it. <laughs> awesome. Uh, and so, Phil, do you have um, you know family or anything like that you wanted to talk about? Yes, I'm our lovely wife, Kathleen. Uh, I've got two daughters. I would have liked the son, but the risk of three daughters was too great, so we quit. <laughs> so uh, just kind of like John, we both have daughters. I, I'm older, so I have two gra- a grandson and a granddaughter as well. So um, yeah, great family. One daughter's in L.A., one daughter's in New York, one's an actor, one's a musician, which means I'll be poor for the rest of my life. Right, right. <laughs> Oh, that's great. You guys are absolutely fantastic. And I'm really um, going to be enjoying this podcast with you. I know I am. So really looking forward to it. Um, the book you um, co-wrote with each other was called um, The Way Back, How Christians Blew Our, Celeb- uh, how Christians Blew Our Credibility and How We um, Can Get It Back. Um, Talk to me a little bit about that. Phil, I want to start with you um, being uh, the resident theologian, as it were, um, Uh about the trend that you notice. And then, Jonathan, I'm going to um, shoot it over to you to kind of, you know, fill in some things you think um, Phil may have missed on that. So, Phil, um, you know, just what was it about this book that first started getting you going? And actually, maybe we should even backtrack a little further um, and talk about what this book actually – is um, you have some staggering statistics. Why don't you go ahead and talk about the book a little bit? And I'm going to bring up some statistics um, kind of thrown in there to just, you know, back up some of the things that you're saying. Sure. Well, both of us, uh, John and I both have one foot in Hollywood and one foot in the the Christian media world. And uh, as a result, we're in a kind of a unique position to see just how much Christian influence in our culture is just disappearing, quite frankly. And, uh, you know, we wonder, we, we see it in primetime television, we see it in the movies, we see it on late night talk shows. We just constantly see the stream of Christian influence just slowly recede from the culture. And um, I, we started thinking about what the cause is. And we're media and marketing people. And, of course, we think the answer to everything is better marketing. You know, you got a, you, you've got a small house. Great. Let's call it cozy. We can always make use marketing to tell a better story. And so we naturally and, and the truth is we as Christians don't tell our story well in a lot of situations. But mm. and, and so we started there. But once we started looking at the research of just why. There's such a disconnect out there in the culture. We started to realize it's much more significant than simply a marketing problem, and that's kind of what launched the journey towards the book. Yeah, and um, you know some of the things that are brought um, just blew my mind, brought to my attention. Um, you know, eighty percent of Americans claim to be Christians, but only twenty percent of them uh, attend church on a weekly basis. 
uh, regular churchgoer attends um, only about 19 times a year. I mean, if you think about, you know, 52 weeks in a year, and so bare minimum, you're going um, once a week. I mean, you would think 52 weeks, but 19 times uh, is just uh, mind-blowing to me. And then um, only about uh, 10% of regular church attendees will tithe. And then 37% of Christians don't even think prayer is essential. Um, and these things, um, to an extent, I, I think I'm a little blown away by them. But on the other hand, um, kind of looking around at the dynamics of you know the local church and things like that, I really can't say that I'm, I'm too surprised by some of those things. Um, when you were looking into this, is this something that you were really taken aback by? Or is this something that kind of confirmed your observations when you were looking at this? Well, uh, you know, I, I think that Phil and I always sensed, as I'm sure many, many Christians out there uh, have sensed uh, like a disconnect, right? Mm. That something's wrong, right? That there's there's a, a disconnect between a, kind of a red light flashing between who the Bible calls us to be and how the world actually sees us. Mm. And one of the things that really started us down the path of potentially wanting to write a book about this is one night we were talking about the fruits of the spirit, um, which, you know, as your listeners know, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, right? Mm, so that's yeah. the fruit we're supposed to be known by. So let me, let me ask you this question, Nathan. Which one of those words would you say uh, that the, the non-Christian world uses to describe us you mean in the fruits of the spirit yeah which which word if we're supposed to be known for those things would you say that they if you, if you asked a, a typical atheist or a typical non-christian do you yeah. think that they would bring up those words to describe us i don't yeah no uh, i agree I yeah i don't i don't think they would i mean you know i was just going through the list again in my mind and it's like love no they they actually think we're pretty hateful spiteful people um you know, so yeah, right. no, I agree with you. Yeah, I think that is a right. problem. So, so that disconnect between uh, how we see ourselves or how we're supposed to be known and how the world sees us is what really got us thinking, hey, maybe we should write a book about this. Mm. And as Phil said, we, we started out thinking this was just like, we came at this hoping this was just a PR problem, mm. right? Bad yeah. messaging. We can fix that. Um, but as we started to, and you alluded to some of those stats, as we started to dig into the actual research of it, it became clear to us that it was a much bigger problem. And when, when you hear those statistics, um, it just reinforces, again, that, that we're not living as we should be living. And what you come away with from this is that all those things that non-Christians say about us, oh my gosh, they're true, right? Yeah. We, yeah. And, and Christian is now practically synonymous with hypocrite. Mm. Yeah. And that is a, a devastating thing. Now, again, I, I want to be clear to uh, your listeners, and I'm, and I'm sure there's plenty of them who uh, are listening to this and saying, well, hold on. I go to church every single Sunday. I'm not one of those, uh, you know, I'm, I'm one of those 20% that show up weekly to church. Sure. I'm one of those people that reads my Bible, um, you know, uh, every single day. I, what you have to understand if you're that person is, first off, good for you. 
uh, truly. I mean, that's uh, you're living it, and and uh, you know we're with you and we support you in that. But what you have to understand is that the people who are not living this, the people who are just Christians in name only or very casual, are super damaging to your ministry mm. and to your effectiveness in reaching out to other people. And I would liken it probably to the the steroids or Balco scandal uh, from baseball, mm. right? Where, um, of course, not all of baseball players were using steroids. That's nonsense, right? And nobody's ever suggested that. But there were enough of them who were that it, it tarred the entire lot, right? Mm. And it yeah. made you suspect every stat of every single baseball player from that point on. And it became known as, and still is known as, the steroid era, yeah. Right. Yeah. So it, that's how much damage it did to baseball players and baseball in general. And the same thing is going on here is that when when you have 40 percent of people who regularly go to church, not even opening their Bible. Yeah, that, that, that mess. That sends a terrible message yeah. um, to to people. And basically what it says to them is. We don't believe in our product. And then the subtext of that is, why should you? Mm. Hmm. Yeah, that's that, that's really interesting. Um, and, you know, I think you're right. I think there is there is a huge disconnect in, you know, believing um, the things that are that you say. Uh, you know, I, I remember and I can't remember where I heard the story, but it was um, of George Whitfield and uh, Benjamin Franklin. And George Whitfield was, you know, preaching one of his, you know, for lack of a better word, sellout, you know, awakenings and you know ben franklin was running you know to go listen to him and you know ben franklin was stopped on the way and basically asked well why are you going to listen to him you don't believe this stuff and ben franklin's response was well but he does you know the idea that he's just so passionate about this that i want to be around someone with that passion yeah i might not believe him but he speaks with such conviction and such truth that i want to be around that Correct. And, and so for, for, for Phil and I, who essentially are media marketing guys, mm-hmm. right, what we discovered is Christianity doesn't have a PR problem. It doesn't have a marketing problem. We have a sales force problem. Mm-hmm. We just simply don't have a staff that believes in our product. And it's a little bit like if you went to a meeting at Pepsi and everyone around the table was drinking a Coke. What would that say to you about about Pepsi, yeah, right? Yeah. And that's what's happening here is when you have people say, oh, I'm a Christian, and then they're living their life no different than anybody else. To those non-Christians, they just think this is – they think we're full of it. Right, right. Now, let me ask you something because I think – I think this brings up a lot of great questions, um, and, and I think this is a tight line to walk because um, you know nobody wants to get into the realm of of legalism and starting to dictate how people should and shouldn't live their lives and what that does and doesn't look like. And so, you know, I want you to help me kind of navigate through that because, you know, there was, there was a point in time where, you know, I, I was working um, in a liquor store. I was manager of a liquor store. I was a believer, you know, um, but I was, I was selling a product, you know, I never, um, sold, uh, illegally, you know, I never sold to minors and, and all these things. And, 
you know, occasionally the guys would want to go out for a beer. And in my particular industry, you know, that's how I would witness to my unbelieving friends. Now, I would make sure when I was going out with them, I wasn't getting drunk and, you know, falling down and, you know, doing what I would consider to be damaging things to um, my testimony. What kind of, how would you approach this to people who, are struggling because I know a lot of our listeners struggle with this idea of wanting to live this holy life, um, but also wanting to make sure that they're not they're not binding someone else's conscience or they're not going into and making someone else you know feeling guilty for things that they might do. And I I, I mean I dealt with a lot of um, Christian friends who were like, well, I can't believe you go out and drink, you know and Quite honest, my response at times was, "Oh, I can't believe you're gossiping about this." I mean, you yeah. know, I'm not getting drunk. So, how how do you approach that with something like this? Because this, to me, this is a delicate line of like, I think there is instruction and guidance that needs to be given, but I also I want to make sure that I'm not coming in, you know, and being like, "This is what you do. This is what you need to do right. to be safe," type of thing. Right. Well, let me put it to you this way. I, I have a friend who, uh, as a hobby, is an ultra runner. I don't know if you're familiar with what ultra runners are, but they run, they essentially run way more than marathons. They run 50Ks, they run 100Ks, they run 100 mile races. Yeah. Okay. He's in incredible shape, not surprisingly, if you're going to run 100 miles in like a 24 hour period. Right. Okay. Right. Um, he doesn't look down on people who run 5Ks. He doesn't look down on people who run 10Ks. He has an affinity for them, and they have a lot in common, and, and he encourages them to, uh, uh, you know, to run a little bit more, and uh, they have a lot to talk about. And so he, he, has, he doesn't look down his nose at, at, at people who are only running a little bit, yeah. right? Yeah. But here's what he doesn't want to do. He's not going to listen to, like, a fat guy lecture him about what good health is about. Mm, Okay. Yeah. And right now Christians are the fat guy at the gym lecturing other people about what it means to be uh, healthy. Mm. That's who we are. Yeah. Yeah. Phil, your, your thoughts, comments on that? Well, you know, I'm sorry. You worked at a liquor store. I'm hanging up on this conversation. I'm out of here. I can't, I can't work with you. Um, (laughs) Also, let me also say to be clear, the ultra runner in the story is not Phil. <laughs> okay, your, your point is well taken. The problem is, and, and it, this is so interesting that you brought that up, because that's exactly the way the culture looks at us. I mean, we talk about the fruits of the Spirit. We want to be known for love, joy, peace, gentleness, you know, faithfulness, self-control. But when we actually ask people what they thought, when they hear the word Christian, what do you think? And we got hypocritical, judgmental, harsh, phony, bigoted, reactionary. So people were saying, we're tired of you shoving your ideas on us. We, mm. we don't want your lifestyle. Yeah. And so we, we've learned perception matters. You know, we want people to accept Christ. We want people to become Christians. But they're never even going to consider that until they change their perception about what it's like to be a Christian. And the truth is, in the last 40 or 50 years, certainly in my lifetime, I've seen things go from prayer in schools being perfectly normal to now it's totally it's totally ridiculous to think people would want to pray in schools. Uh, abortion was wrong when I was young. Today, it's the law of the land. Mm. A marriage back in those days was t- between a man and a woman. That's all been turned on its head in my lifetime. So how have we reacted? Most Christians have been upset about it. We, we've been angry. So we've tried boycotts. You know, you don't say Merry Christmas. <laughs> Fine. I'm 
and your coffee. Uh, but boycotts don't work. If boycotts work, why don't missionaries try it? Let's go to a third world country and surround a village and hold up signs and call them names and criticize them. Yeah, that'll win them to Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, boycotts don't work for missionaries. So they don't work in Hollywood or the gay community or government anywhere else. So we tried all these anger strategies um, yeah. over and over, and they just don't work. Nobody changes because you yell at them. Yeah. So what we thinking is – what are the things we could do that would soften their perce- perception, change their heart to make them at least consider what it's like to be us? As long as they're looking at us as phony hip- hypocrites, they're not even remotely interested in becoming like us. And yeah. that's a huge problem in our culture today. My dad was a pastor. John's dad was a music director at a major church here, here in L.A. And, and back in those days, everybody respected pastors and church leaders. I mean, people who had never darkened the door of, uh, of a church still respected my dad. Mm. Today, I read a study just two weeks ago that pastors have now dropped to the level that they're below used car salesmen as far as trust in America. So it's not just that they've turned us off. They've turned against us completely. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And and for me, as I look at this um, and, and, you know, look, we um, as you've learned now, Phil and I have the gift of discouragement. (laughs) Um, uh, 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 But, you know, as 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 we look at this. We really struggled hard um, with what these are the symptoms of a major problem, right? I mean, people not showing up to church, people not reading their Bible, people saying prayer isn't important, uh, people not tithing, and all who claim the name of Christ— like, what is this, right? Yeah. Th- these are symptoms. Yeah. What's the disease, right? And what we really tried to hammer into into the book and uh, struggle with is what the problem is here and what's caused this current state of this. And the answer to that is was as surprising and shocking to us as I think it will be uh, to your listeners. And essentially, it's this. If you, if you look at the Ten Commandments, right, probably – the, the most ignored commandment after keeping the Sabbath holy mm-hmm. um, is, is to have no graven images or no idols, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we look at that commandment and we immediately sort of think of, um, you know, the Israelites, right? That the, that the second Moses is up the, up the hill, um, you know, they're throwing a, a great big party and making a golden calf. And we kind of tisk our tongues and go, silly Israelites. Sure, yeah. Uh, you know, and we tend to look at idol worship like it's a relic of the past, right? Like like leeching or something, right? Yeah, like yeah. it doesn't really happen anymore. Um, but if the sin of idolatry is crafting a man-made self-serving version of God, then Americans are the single most sophisticated idol makers in the history of humanity. Yeah. Because we have made an idol that looks like God, but it's uh, a, an idol nonetheless. And he, that idol doesn't mind that we don't go to church. Right. Mm. And he's fine with us not reading the Bible. And he, he doesn't really demand any obedience from us. And he's fine with us glossing over, you know, commandments and verses that make us uncomfortable. And he, he's a God that blesses our political aims, even though, though they have nothing to do with the Bible. Yeah. Right. And yeah. it's essentially a God that conforms to our view of the world and not the other way around. Yeah. And that is we actually considered calling the, the book that other God, mm. because what we really feel is, is that it's very obvious to us 
that a huge majority of Christians uh, are not worshiping God. They're worshiping another God, yeah. which is an idol. Yeah. You know, I, I, you know, I really appreciate you saying that, Jonathan, because um, for a while now I've had a saying that I throw around whenever I hear those types of things in terms of people wanting to take what Scripture says and make it their own. And to me, you know, that's, that's the Burger King mentality, your way right away. You know, it's, yeah. hey, if you're not happy with it, that's fine. We'll just, you know, we'll take that out. We'll put that in. We'll do this. We'll do that. We will set and adjust the Bible and the message to fit what you want and what makes you comfortable, not what it truly says about issues and topics. Um, Correct. So, you know, Correct. I really, really do appreciate what you're saying about that. And I just want to remind our listeners, talking with um, Jonathan Bach and Phil Cook about their book, um, The Way Back, How Christians Blew Our Credibility and How We Get It Back. This book is actually going to drop next uh, Tuesday, the 6th, Correct. Yep. Yep. Next Tuesday, the sixth, and we'll have um, a couple of giveaways for that. But I want to um, I want to continue um, just with our discussion because, again, what you're saying is so important, and I think there are so many um, of the listeners out there who are um, excited and anxious to, you know, be thinking about these things because one of the questions that we get, we love, we love talking grace on our podcast and we preach grace on our podcast all the time because that is the foundation of the cross. But there is the aspect of the holiness of God that is often overlooked in the preaching of grace. And I think, what you all have um, done very wonderfully is talked about the the consequences of overlooking our holiness, um, the part where we go in and we get our hands dirty and we start doing the work, you know. And and I get it. Like church is uh, a messy business. It's always been a messy business. One of my favorite things to hear, and I mean this sarcastically, is. When people talk about the golden age of the New Testament church, how we could just go back to that, and I scratch my head and think, well, which what church do you want to go back to? The church at Corinth, where they had issues with sexual immorality and you know backfighting and you know digging each other and trying to you know I want your gift and I want to do this more or that more. The church has always had its problems, but this was still the vehicle Christ was going to use and is using today in order to bring the gospel to the world. Um, do you, I mean, can you guys talk about that? Like, you know, just words of encouragement, even for people who are, you know, uh, disparaged with church and, you know, I'm sure there are listeners out there who have been saying, you know what, I spent 20 years in the church and, you know, it, it was just, it beat me down and, and broke me up. And, you know, it just, it wasn't what it was supposed to be. And, you know, words of encouragement and, you know, yeah, keep going with it. So, um, Phil or Jonathan? Well, so, you know, there's no question that that concept of that other God is so real. We've just fashioned this God that looks a lot like the God of the Bible. But the truth is he understands why I don't show up at church. He understands why I don't have time to read the Bible. He, he loves me and, and he, he wants what's best for me. He understands why I'm having an affair. Mm-hmm. My wife is kind of older and kind of grumpy and he wants me to be happy. And um, we've created this God that's really shaped out of our view of the world, not uh, one that is the true God of the universe. And we're not shaping our lives to his uh, to his formula. So mm-hmm. th- there's, th- this is a really powerful thing. And part of that is 
because this God understands, we don't really look at holiness anymore as something to, to strive for. Uh, we've taken this grace thing so far that the idea of actually doing the hard things of being a Christian uh, and trying to impact this world and trying to live a life that people would emulate, R.C. Sproul, the theologian who just passed away last month yes. said that uh, holiness fascinates non-believers. He talked about a German study that indicated that non-believers are fascinated with people that actually live holy lives because they realize there's something there that I want to emulate. I mean, look at it this way. What if we became the only people in America that took marriages and families seriously? You know, if you look at the statistics, our divorce rates are just about as high as the divorce rates in the secular world. Yeah. But what if we just went that extra mile and we were the people that everybody looked to to think that's the way a family should work? I mean, when you think about it, the biggest hot button issues in culture right now are marriage, family, uh, children, those kind of issues, abortion, those kind of things related to marriage, romance, sex, those kind of things. But if what if we set an example for being the people that work through these issues and made our marriages work, made our families work, what would the culture do? What would they think of that? They'd want to be like that. So, yeah. it, but that takes really hard work, and that's what holiness is. Holiness is not you know being better than anybody else. It's putting in the hard work of living the life God called us to live. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that, uh, and I'll, I'll let Phil talk a little bit uh, uh, about this, but. Um, one of the things that when we when we got to the bottom of the issue, right, uh, of that we uh, that a lot of Christians are worshiping an idol. Um, once we understood that, uh, at least we could go. All right, how do we address this problem, and how do we find our way back? Mm. And um, it, it really led us to okay, let, let's go back a little bit. I mean, if we have to go all the way back, let's go all the way back. So we went back to the early church and said, all right, let's just go back to the beginning and, and, and look at how they did it. Um, and because if you look at the early church and you look at the, where the disciples started from, I mean, let's talk about the disciples. They were, when, when Jesus uh, ascended into heaven and they're standing on the Mount of Olives, mm -hmm. they are standing there and they have virtually no education. They yeah. have no plan. They have no money. They have no power. They have no political influence. They have nothing. They, they stood there for so long that at some point, uh, God sent two angels to them to say, come on, fellas, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's coming back down here. It's time for you boys to get to work. Yeah. And so how did they do it? How were they able to um, start from nothing? absolutely nothing and within a few hundred years uh have christianity be the most influential force in the world mm. that was a question for us and uh and 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 phil why don't you take from there well you know you're exactly right first of all that that in every age there have been christians that have screwed up that we've dropped the ball and not made the impact we could but we tried to look for when was there a time when the church as a whole was pretty much getting it right. And we did have to go back 2,000 years to those first few generations of Christians in ancient Rome. And what we discovered was, as John said, these are people with no money, no power, no influence. They couldn't pass laws. They couldn't complain. They'd be persecuted if they did. Mm -hmm. And so they saw things that totally drove them nuts. For instance, the, the Romans had no concept for life. It sounds like our culture today, actually. 
when a baby was born they didn't want. Uh, maybe it was a girl. Maybe it was an extra mouth to feed. They would just leave it on the city wall to die of exposure. It was called um, infant exposure. And we actually, it was so common in the Roman Empire, we have existing letters from Roman soldiers in the field writing to their wives saying when the baby's born, if it's a girl, just expose it. And it was just very, very common. Well, the Christians hated that because they knew every child was born in the image of God, but they couldn't complain. They couldn't pass laws. They couldn't boycott anything. So what they took, what their strategy was, they would go out under cover of night. These crazy Christians that people couldn't figure out, they would go out under uh, under cover of night and take these children off the city walls, take them off out of the fields, wherever they'd been abandoned to die of exposure. These Christians took them in, took them into their family raised them as their own, and then these other Christians in the community would donate money to help pay for them to do it. And mm. time after time after time, this happened so often, the, the, the Romans just had no concept for why anybody would do this. I mean, they could not wrap their head around it. Other things happened just like that. For instance, when the plague would hit, Romans could not get out of the city fast enough. But Christians, on the other hand, went right to the heart of the plague at the risk of their own life. They went to minister to people at the heart of the plague. And historians today tell us that that happened so often, it forced the Romans to rethink who these people are and who is this God that they serve. They couldn't explain it. They were so astonished. Remember in the New Testament, when Jesus would preach and teach, the people were astonished. Well, nobody gets astonished anymore. But this, this, these early church members, man, they astonished the Roman people. And so historians today tell us a shift happened in the Roman Empire. It wasn't military. It wasn't force. But a shift started happening that softened their hearts and changed their perspective on who these Christians were. And so bottom line is we ask in the book, what are the things we could do today that would so astonish this culture? It would force them to rethink who we are and who is this God that we serve. Yeah. And if you could, I mean, talk about that a little bit, um, because I think, I think sometimes, um, well, I know sometimes, particularly today, we, we get wrong what it is we should be doing to impact our culture. And I think to an extent, unfortunately, social media has played a, um, a hand in a lot of that, you know, phrase that, um, is used so often. Um, you know, I, I really believe social media turns, uh, cowards into bullies a lot of times. And so when these issues come up, you have people who are calling themselves believers who are getting online and they are blasting things out there on the internet that if you were sitting down face to face with this real human being, you would never dare say these things to their face. You would be much more cordial and loving and comforting in the conversation that you have with this person, seeing how broken and downcast they, they are over whatever decisions they're making. Um, and, and you would never just do that. I mean, can you guys speak to that a little bit too? Yeah, well, I, I think that it's incumbent upon all of us as Christians to be living a life in such a way that if something like that were to happen where someone's being blasted by a quote-unquote Christian online, that the non-Christian would read that and go, that doesn't sound like any of the other Christians that I know. Yeah. And, uh, and that we're leading our lives in such a way that um, people wouldn't, wouldn't question that. And, and, and that really comes down to us, first off, just starting quite simply with being better neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, 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 would, I would encourage you as you're thinking about this, like, how, how many of your neighbors do you know? Like, I, I know in my own life, uh, there, was, there was a time 
uh, a couple of years ago where I live on a street where of the, let's call it dozen houses. Like I knew the people to the right and to the left of me and the neighbor across the street. And I didn't know anybody else's name on yeah. my street. You know, people who I would see every single day, wave to as they went by the street, nod to, uh, see them out there with their dog, whatever. I knew nothing about them. I knew I was not invested in their life. I, it was, and so that's a very, very simple place for us to start is, is just with our neighbors. We don't, we don't need to run off to, um, you know, Asia to be a missionary. You, you can just do it right in your own uh, backyard practically. And I, I have uh, another friend who has made it his mission in life uh, to make sure that he is invested in the lives of every single person that he crosses paths with every single day on a regular basis. So to the Starbucks that he goes to, he's made an effort to know the names of the baristas and who they are and just know a bit about them, that they have kids. And, you know, the guy at the parking structure where he parks to know that guy's name and the security guy and all of the assistants down the road that he walks, that he actually not only knows their name, but is invested in their lives because he's seeing them every single day and he's seeing the dividends of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love what you said about that because, um, one of the things that I found made a huge difference for me when I was when I was working in the liquor store. Um, I, I I mean I really I wasn't working around any believers. Um, and in Maryland, the laws um, for same sex marriage had just passed. And my boss came to me, um, and this was two years after working for him. I just kind of I did my thing. I wasn't preachy um, and judgmental of the things that were done in the store. I I lived a separate life from the rest of those people in terms of my example for Christ, and they knew that and saw that, but we still got along and we had a good time. And my boss came to me one day and just said, you know, you, you're a Christian, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, tell me what you think about all this. And we were able to sit down and have a half hour long conversation about um, you know, homosexuality. And really, I just turned it on its head and I said, you know, here's the thing is that God's plan for marriage is just ruined in general because we're sinners. And I was able to lay out the whole gospel message for him, how, you know, Christ lives a perfect substitutionary atonement for me because I'm not the perfect husband. That's what God calls me to be is the perfect husband. God has a perfect plan for marriage. And that little bit of conversation I was able to unfold the gospel in a way that was not judging him for his thoughts and views um, because he was – I mean he was a Jewish man, but he was not a an actively practicing Orthodox Jew, um, very liberal Jew. And we were just able to have a conversation and grow in our relationship. And to me, that was so much more valuable because – I had become his neighbor. I had learned to love him where he was in that moment. And so I was able to preach the gospel to him in a very natural way where he was able to hear it. Now, he he didn't accept it. He didn't become a Christian. This isn't one of those moments where he fell to his knees. But it was one of those things that just strengthened our relationship and allowed further opportunities for me to preach the gospel with him. Yeah. You know what I like about you, Nathan, is that you've got a lot of good liquor store stories. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I, I have tons. Wow. <laughs> yeah. No, but look, uh, the, the, the truth of that story is is that you earned the right to be heard. Yeah. Right? Because you were invested in this guy's life in, in a place 
where it, it wasn't preachy. He, he was genuinely asking you yeah. what you thought. And, and we need to go back and do that hard work again of, uh, of investing into the people around us. Yeah. Um, so that they will even pay attention to us. Yeah. Right. And that's part of what Phil and I's book really encourages people to do is, is one is to, to get back to the basics of what this faith is, is. And, uh, there's, there's lots of different things that we go through in the book that are essentially abandoned mysteries and practices that the early church did that we have just fully stopped doing, um, uh, that we need to get back to. But then it really comes down to, we need to find like the early church did, we need to find ways to, to astonish uh, the world again with yes. some things that we do. And that needs to happen on an individual basis. And it needs to happen on a collective basis. And lots of our incredibly good ideas that were generated out of the early church and the growth of the church, things like hospitals, mm. right. Yeah. And, uh, and orphanages and adoption and universities. These were all such good ideas that there's now secular versions of all of those things right. and, and good. Right. But the world is not going to be too impressed with us. If we just make another soup kitchen, like right. big deal, right? right. Or another hospital. Yeah. Hospitals are nice, but that's not going to make people go, wow, I have to totally rethink, you know, everything that I know about Christians because of this. So mm. we tried to lay out in the book, some suggestions that we had, about ways that we could baffle and astonish uh, culture and force them to rethink the God we serve. So as an example of that, um, I'll, I'll use the example of, of foster care mm-hmm. in this country. Um, that is a giant size mess of a problem. Amen. Okay? And it is a me- There are 450,000 kids who are are living in the foster care system right now. They are, it's a mess, okay? Most of them are living in multi-unit housing with other kids. It's essentially orphanages that yeah. they're living in. 450,000. Now, you look at that as an individual and you go, oh my gosh, that's just too big for us to even think about doing anything about it. Except when you consider that there are 300,000 plus churches in this country. Yeah. And if every church took one or two kids, that's one family taking two kids or one family taking one kid and all of the other people in that church deciding, hey, we're going to be there to support you. We're going to be there with financially. We're going to help you out with, uh, you know, raising this kid. Uh, You know, we're going to do whatever it takes to eliminate um, foster program in this country. If every church did that, in a year, we could wipe out the foster program entirely, just simply abandon empty of, yeah. of children because they are now in loving homes. And not only would that be astonishing, but also astonishing would be 450,000 uh, uh, kids who have no parents, no one who loves them, no one who cares about them even a bit mm. now being raised in a family and in a community where dozens and hundreds of people love and care about them. How much is that going to transform those people's lives and the generations that come behind them? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's excellent. 
Excellent. Uh, we are, again, just want to remind the listeners, talking with um, Jonathan Bach and Phil Cook about their book, The Way Back, How Christians Blew Our Credibility and How We Can Get It Back. Um, one of the things that I was fascinated by when um, I was looking at the book, we um, have just celebrated the one-year anniversary of our current president, um, President Donald Trump, and he just gave um, the uh, State of the Union address, and uh, there is a whole lot of uh, mess going on politically in our country right now. Um, I, I mean, things are just so crazily divided right now. And one of the things that I appreciate was you addressing um, about Christians um, being concerned with the church, uh, getting behind politics only when it's convenient. Can you um, talk a little bit about that, either Jonathan or Phil? Well, we, we believe that we should people should be involved in politics, no question about it. I mean, join a party, vote, run for office if you'd like to. The problem is – the problem happens when you start dragging the church into it. Yeah. Um, Statistically, right now, about high forties of the you know percentage of the country is conservative. Uh, a low fifties percent of the country maybe you know consider themselves liberal, which means that the minute you attach the gospel to a political party, mm-hmm. you've just alienated half of the culture. Yeah, and how does that help? The, you know, spreading the gospel. How does that help? And so we just found over and over again, it gets really problematic when you start. Actually, sharing the you know connecting the gospel with a political party that you know politics is all about compromise and that's a good thing. I wish we had more compromise in Washington right now because that's the way you get things done. However, the gospel isn't about compromise, mm-hmm. and there's no party, no party on either side of the fence that is 100% in alignment with the gospel. So the bottom line is the the you know politics is about day to day issues. Christianity should transcend politics. It should be so much uh, – it should be higher than politics because it's dealing with much bigger issues. Mm-hmm. And so as much as we do get excited about political stuff, mm-hmm. um, I just don't think it helps when we start dragging the church into the political arena. Yeah, I, I, I think this too, uh, Nathan, which was if you look at the – if you look at Jesus, he, he seemed – remarkably, shockingly uninterested in influence. Yes, yes. It was not a priority for him at all. And listen, you know, as as a a marketer, it's always been confounding to me this this thing that Jesus would do where he would heal someone, right? And this person is like seeing for the first time or, you know, you know, off their mat and they have, you know, they can walk for the first time in their entire life. And almost every single time Jesus says to them, now don't tell anybody what I did. Right. Which to me is like laughable because of course they're going to tell everybody. Right. But what is the root of that? What is the root of why Jesus is keep saying that uh, to people? And, And I look at that and I say, part of the, I think the fear for Jesus um, was the, was the drawing of the crowd, that the the influence, the people coming and demanding he be a Messiah, um, you know, it all trying to peak too soon. I mean, all of those things, he, he seemed to um, want to get away from all of that, from popularity and, and the things that come with that. And as a matter of fact, as you look at, how he conducted himself when he was being tempted uh, by Satan, 
two of those three temptations were essentially to to have power and popularity, right? Yeah. Throw yeah. yourself off the temple so that everybody can see who you are, right? And the angels will come and save you, yep. right? And then the other one was, if you bow down to me, all of the nations will bow down to you right away, right? Yeah. And so I think the human side of him was very, very concerned about um, the you know popularity and power and and was very nervous about that. And yeah. so where he could get away from that, he often did mm. because he didn't want to have anything to do with that. Yeah. Yeah. Except we're doing the exact opposite. Right. We're chasing influence. We're chasing popularity. We're chasing power. And our master didn't do that at all. Yeah. So why are we doing it? Yeah. Well, and it, it's it's excellent what you're saying because you think about even from um, his birth, you know, this was something that was a, a literal lifestyle for Christ. You know, even when he comes down, there aren't trumpets blown. It's not, you know, it's not the announcement to the entire world. He's born in a manger, um, you know, in, in a feeding trough, in a stable with animals around. And the announcement goes out to shepherds, which is, uh, you know, good profession, but we're not, you know, we're not talking, like you said, the PR people of this time, you know, um, and, and he just, he lived that lifestyle of humility. You know, it's like it says in Philippians, he humbled himself um, and became obedient even unto death, death on the cross. Um, his yeah. whole life was about humility and servitude. And you're right, we try to do uh, so much of the opposite where we want to puff ourselves up and, hey, look at me, look what I did. Um, yeah. So Yeah, uh, you know, one of the things that we talk about in The Way Back is – uh, radical humility and Phil, t- tell him the story of your uh, your friend, the, the businessman, and how he he sought radical humility. When we we were um, when we were writing the book, we uncovered the story of a businessman here in Los Angeles that really felt like you know he was ang- harboring a lot of anger about the gay community and the changes that have been happening in the culture, and so he felt convicted that he should maybe go serve them. And so he got a job. The successful businessman got a job is a weekend janitor at a gay bar. Uh, didn't go there to evangelize anybody, just went there to serve. He just felt he should do it. And it wasn't about compromising his principles, compromising his theology. He just felt that he needed to serve. Mm-hmm. And um, he was there for you know months before anybody even asked what was going on. And um, when they did, I can imagine it was a really interesting time because he didn't preach to him. He didn't lecture to him. He just shared the story of how he felt that he needed to serve. And this is a community that's used to Christians getting upset with them, yelling at them, getting mad. But here's somebody that was willing to serve enough that he he worked to be a, a janitor in the gay bar on weekends. So uh, those kind of radical, you know, and, and we wondered what other areas of our life could we show radical humility? One of the biggest things Christ, uh, non-Christians use to criticize us um, uh, is, is issues like us telling them how to live their life. Mm. Radical humility serves. It doesn't tell anybody what to do. And yet real humility has a powerful, powerful way of changing people's hearts. So mm. it would be interesting as your listeners are listening to this, what are the areas in your office, in your community, in your neighborhood where you could practice some kind of a radical form of humility that might change the way people look at who you are and who is the God that you serve? Yeah. Another area that we... Uh took a look at and was kind of a question for us as, and again, in the, in the area of how can we astonish the world is we asked ourselves the question, 
why do Christians cry at our funerals? Like, I'm not talking about the the the, the baby who dies of uh, you know uh, of SIDS, or, you know, or the 14 right. year old who dies in a car crash. You know, something uh, uh, ter- terrible uh, about that. Um, we're talking about Uncle Bob, who's 82 and has been a Christian his whole life, and yet we have these like very morose, sedate funerals. What are we doing? Mm. Uh, How different would it be if Uncle Bob's friends who are non-Christians, you know, put on their black dress and black suit and they walked into a church and it was a crazy party. And it was like the biggest, loudest, uh, you know, party there was with a Calypso band because (laughs) our, our theology says Uncle Bob didn't die. Uncle Bob has just crossed over into heaven and he is alive and he another one cheated death again. Right? And why aren't we taking that kind of approach? Well, what do you think those two friends of Uncle Bob would say if they saw something like that where all these Christians were so happy and so grateful and so excited for Uncle Bob? When they walked away from that event, they would be like, what was that? Mm, It would be like nothing they had ever been to before. But it would start to get them to rethink whatever is the uh, hardened DNA of how they think about Christians. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So good guys. And we are, um, unfortunately winding down on time. This has been such a blessing to have you guys on and to be able to speak with you about this. Once again, just want to remind the listeners, uh, Jonathan Bach and Phil cook their book, the way back. Uh, it releases next Tuesday, February, uh, seven, uh, six, sorry, February 6th. Um, we're going to be giving away two free copies. And so, uh, just real quick, want to let our listeners know the way you can get one of those copies is if you retweet this, when you, um, when you get it on the Twitter feed and it pops up and you retweet this podcast, uh, you will be entered into the contest to win uh, a free book. And then the other way is if you are on Facebook, when we post this on Facebook, if you repost this on your Facebook page, then you will also be entered. And um, I can see those stats and who does that. So I will make sure that you get entered into the contest to be able to win that. So Jonathan, Phil, um, once again, thank you so much. This has been so great talking with you guys about this um, and getting this out to our listeners. Um, Such great practical wisdom and advice from you guys. So, so much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and sign off now. Jonathan, Phil, we just rocked the Casbah. These go to 11.